When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast with Rebecca Larson. Anne of Denmark is introduced to us after the death of Queen Elizabeth I, but that wasn't her beginning, was it? Today, I'm joined by Dr. Susan Dunn-Hensley to learn more about this queen consort of Scotland, England, and Ireland. Susan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to have someone on to talk about this amazing queen that we usually don't veer into because we talk mostly about the Tudors, but Anne of Denmark and James I and VI is so close to the Tudors that I think this topic is an important one for us to have. Susan, could you maybe give the listeners just a little bit of your background? Yes, um, I am a literature professor at Wheaton College in Illinois, and I actually became interested in Anna of Denmark uh, because of the court masks that she participated in and sponsored. Um, so, yeah, I'm coming at her sort of from a literary perspective, and my book, Anna of Denmark and Henrietta Maria, Virgins, Witches, and Catholic Queens is uh, both historical and uh, literary. So there's a lot of literary analysis in that as well. Yeah. So today I'm hoping you're going to help us learn a little bit about her life and her life in literature. Yes. Well, let's, let's just kind of start from the beginning with her. She clearly lived a fascinating life and with so much of her lifespan to cover, could you maybe give us a brief idea of what her childhood was like, maybe who her parents were, did she have siblings, and what was her education like? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so just a little bit about her and her um, early years. So Anna was the daughter of Frederick II, King of Denmark and Norway, and his wife Sophia. And we know that both Frederick and Sophia supported learning and scientific advancement, and so that probably passed that on to their children. Um, Anna was the second oldest of Frederick and Sophia's seven children. Um, and Sophia took a personal interest in the education of her children. Uh, we know that in 1588, an Englishman visiting the court wrote to Lord Burley to describe Sophia as a right, virtuous, and godly princess, which with motherly care and great wisdom ruleth the children. Um, we don't actually have a lot of evidence to tell us exactly what type of education Anna received uh, during her childhood in Denmark. Um, however, Mara Wade has done research on the topic, and uh, she argues that it can be assumed that Anna and her sisters received the education necessary to prepare them for dynastic marriage. Um, Wade suggests that Anna's education may have been similar, um, obviously probably not identical, but similar to that of her brother Christian, the heir to the Danish throne. 
Um, and we bases this supposition on similarities in the style, the structure, and the language used in letters written by Anna and her brother. Anna was very adept with languages. Um, Maureen Meikle talks about her being a skilled linguist. And it's really interesting. This fact is often ignored by historians who want to present Anna as unintelligent or superficial, but actually she was very intelligent. Um, she also had the accomplishments of a consort. She loved to dance and danced well, and she also played music. So you said she's a skilled linguist. How many languages did she know? Well, I know that she spoke, of course, Danish, German, French, but she also learned broad Scots, so she'd be able to communicate uh, with her husband and his court. And also French was helpful for the for his court as well. This is interesting because, of course, consorts don't always know the language. Um, her daughter-in-law, Henrietta Maria, came to England not knowing English, only being able to speak French, and that really caused some division between uh, Henrietta Maria and the English people. So it's actually a very positive thing that Anna was able to pick up on languages, and she was apparently um, well-liked well by the people as well, a very attractive woman. She was tall and she was affable. So it's very sad that she's been ignored so much by history when uh, she really played her role as consort quite well in many ways. It is too bad. I've always felt like the focus is on too many of the same people over and over. Hopefully this episode will open the eyes of some of the listeners to want to learn more about her. Yes. Well, it's it's even more than that, too, though. It's not just that she's been ignored, which she has, but also when she has been discussed in historical work, she's often dismissed as superficial. Um, some scholars have actually called her stupid. The term has been used in um, published scholarly work about her from earlier in the 20th century, of course. Um, and I find that just to be very unfortunate because it doesn't fit the historical record at all. That's too bad. Well, let's try and change that, shall we? Yes, yes. <laughs> you mentioned um, that she had to learn, I forgot now what kind of form of Scottish that you had mentioned, but I assume that was um, in preparation to Mary James the Sixth of Scotland. When was she betrothed to him? Okay, so this is interesting, too. Um, the royal marriage between James and one of the Danish princesses, and actually the original plan was for the elder sister, Princess Elizabeth, uh, to be the one who married James. Um, that marriage was proposed as in, in, in the early 1580s. The people of Scotland really wanted a Scottish-Danish alliance, and um, the Scottish merchants particularly wanted some trading concessions. So the Scots are very interested in um, an alliance with the Danes. Um, but the Scots are also looking at different options. Uh, so the Danes were open to negotiate in 1586, but the Scots hesitated uh, because Elizabeth I and the new Scottish Chancellor, Sir John Maitland, both favored a match between James and Catherine of Navarre. And that's, of course, a sister to the Huguenot heir to the French throne, uh, the future Henry IV. Well, nothing really happened at that point, and that James had to deal with the execution of his mother. So in 1588, they decided to open up the negotiations again, but then Frederick, um, uh, Elizabeth and um, Anna's father died in April of 1588. And so that postponed negotiations. 
So while all of this is happening, the elder princess, Elizabeth, became engaged to the Duke of Brunswick. So that kind of took her off the market. Uh, but the Scots still hoped to secure the, uh, the alliance, and so they turned their attentions to Anna at that point. But James still had a choice. He had a choice between Catherine of Navarre and Anna. So the story goes that he took portraits of both princesses into his bedchamber to pray and meditate for three days to decide what God wanted him to do, and he ultimately selected Anna. Now, it's probably not terribly surprising that he selected her because um, Catherine was already 30, while James himself was 23, and Anna was only 14, and she was very beautiful. So she was the one that he chose to be his wife. And it wasn't a love match, was it? Well, dynastic marriages rarely were. Um, his, the, the, the marriage um, actually started with a rather romantic gesture. Um, Princess Anna of Denmark married James by proxy on August the 20th, 1589. And on September 5th, they, she embarked on what she thought would no doubt be a very short trip to Scotland. Instead, there were severe storms and problems with some of the ships in the Danish fleet and um, lots of other circumstances. So she arrived 50 days later in Oslo, Norway. Well, James got frustrated with these delays. So he left Scotland in October to go to Oslo to rescue his new bride. And, you know, this is rather unusual for a Scottish king, I suppose, or for a king to leave his land to go get his bride. But it was rather a, a romantic adventure for him. And we do have evidence, I think, that early on that um, he did try to make um, Anna comfortable. He had her bed sent from Denmark to Scotland so she would be comfortable in her new home. Um, but with, as with many dynastic marriages, you have people who don't know each other from different cultures getting married. Um, and so there are going to be tensions. And there definitely were tensions early uh, in James and um, Anna's marriage. Um, and they actually over two fairly important issues. Uh, first, there was a kind of a struggle about the lands that were promised to her in the marriage settlement. And the second and probably more significant struggle involved the raising of their eldest son, Henry. This brief interruption is brought to you by, well, me. Do you love Tudor's Dynasty? Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of amazing things that the everyday listener does not. Find out more by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty, and click Become a Patron for details. All right, back to the show. So just really briefly, I don't want to get, I don't want to bore anyone with us, but one of the first struggles that James and Anna had um, was over the lands promised to her in the marriage settlement. Um, and the second big struggle was with the raising of their eldest son, Henry. The struggles over the land actually put Anna in conflict with Scotland's chancellor, Sir John Maitland. And Leeds Barrel calls the struggle a near crisis. Even Elizabeth I intervened to try to resolve the tension between Anna and James over this land. Um, there are some, and if you are interested, there's, there's more information and other sources, but um, Anna's frustration with Maitland probably started because she found out he had opposed the marriage. He had wanted um, James to choose um, Catherine of Navarre. 
However, he also, or his wife apparently also said something insulting to Anna. So that also put her against him. But the main concern was the fight over the land. And the, the, the real struggle was for control over Dunfernline Abbey. Um, it was an estate that James had given Anna for their marriage settlement. And the reason from the, for the quarrel apparently derived from ambiguous wording in part of the marriage settlement. David Stevenson suggests that James had actually never intended to include the abbey in the settlement, but unfortunately the Danes believed that James had promised Anna land on which the abbey sat. The lands belonged to Chancellor Maitland. But to make things more complicated, he didn't really have a strong hand in the fight against Anna because the lands weren't his ancestral lands, but part of a former abbey, and he'd only been granted lordship of that abbey in 1587. Because of this fact, his enemies, who allied with Anna against him, uh, were able to present his reluctance to give the queen the, the abbey as a sign that he was a nouveau riche. He was trying to cheat her of her property. Now, there are some scholars who present Anne's quest for her land as a petty, superficial thing, but the truth is, as Maureen Minkle points out, um, Anna's desire to fight for land wasn't actually part of a childish desire to take what she wanted. Instead, the loss of the abbey actually threatened her income, and Anna, like many early modern consorts, kept her own court with its own financial administration. And as Mikkel points out, she had people to feed and clothe and pay wages to, so she actually needed this land. And so she would struggle for that land for quite some time. And finally, uh, Maitland did step back and give that to her. But the main struggle between James and Anna, I think was more personal. And um, that was the struggle that pitted her against the Earl of Mar, who was the guardian for her son, Henry. So on February 19th of 1594, um, Anna gave birth to her first child, Prince Henry, heir to the Scottish throne. And the Privy Council decided that James's closest supporter, um, the Earl of Mar, should be guardian uh, for the young boy and that he and his mother should raise the boy. Now Anna objected vocally and vehemently because she wanted to be in charge of the raising of her son. Um, they would struggle over the, uh, the care and the guardianship of their son uh, until James became king of England. And it got very, um, it got very bad. Um, in May of 1595, Roger Aston, who was the English agent in Scotland, reported that the queen speaks more plainly than before and will not cease till she has her son. And a report sent to Cecil in England described the situation in terms of a standoff with two factions one for the king and one for the queen. And the term, the, the term faction is important, I think, because um, Anna was very adept while she was in Scotland at getting uh, James's enemies to side with her against him, first in that battle for land and second in this battle for her son. She's not as successful, though, with getting her son until finally um, Elizabeth I dies in 1603 and, and James leaves for Scotland. And at that point, Anna makes her move. She goes to the Earl of Mar's castle in Stirling and she demands her son. Um, during the standoff, Anna actually suffers a miscarriage. Um, and finally playing her final card, she refuses to leave Scotland without her son. James wants his transition to England to be as smooth as possible. So finally he breaks the guardianship and um, Anna is able to um, 
you know, have, have Henry for herself. But those struggles do color their, their years together in Scotland. Yeah, I can see now that all makes a little bit more sense um, why their relationship went a little bit south. So Anna probably spent quite some time alone with her ladies or her household. What did she do to keep herself entertained? Like, Was she a patron of anything? Could you tell us more about that? Um, yes, Anna did spend a lot of time um, with her own court. In fact, um, you could kind of think of there being, when we get to England, as almost three courts. You have Henry's court, you have Prince Henry's court, uh, you have Anna's court, and you have James's court. Uh, one of the reasons why um, Anna did end up spending time sort of by herself in England was because of James's love of hunting. He loved to go out to the country, to his cottages, and to hunt. And so Anna often stayed at the Hampton Court while he did that. But Anna was, in fact, um, a significant patron of the arts. And you're going to find some historians who credit the artistic flourishing of the Jacobean period to um, her son, Henry. But the truth is, um, the artistic flourishing had as much to do with Anna as it did with her son. Um, according to Courtney Thomas, Anna and her ladies, especially um, Lucy Russell, Countess of Bedford, formed an extremely important patronage dispensing group. Uh, Thomas argues that it was due mainly to her patronage that the careers of some court painters were launched. And in fact, there are more oil paintings of Anna of Denmark than any previous English queen consort. Um, she made quite a bit of contribution to the arts in, um, in England. Again, the tendency is to focus on James and Henry as the originators of Jacobian artistic flourishing. But Anna leaves a lasting cultural mark on England through patronizing dramatists, writers, painters, and architects. Uh, one thing I want to mention is architecture because it was one of her great loves. And it was probably a love she inherited from her father. Um, Anna employed Inigo Jones, who also designed her masks to design architectural projects for her. And these projects included a new residence at Greenwich Palace, which James had given her in 1613 and was later called the Queen's House. Uh, Jones also refurbished Somerset House shortly after uh, they came to England, and it was renamed by Royal Command Denmark House. Now, the house at Greenwich was not committed, actually completely in Anna's lifetime. It was primarily uh, used by her successor, Henrietta Maria, but the design that she had created for it was adhered to. So there are architectural um, influences of the queen. She was also a significant collector of art. She collected jewelry, for example, and her jewelry collection is the largest collection that had been owned by a queen consort to that date. Um, so she also uh, did court masks, which as a literature scholar, I'm very interested in. And all of these things, I think, really had an impact on the arts in the Jacobean period. Again, I've said this a couple of times, but it's so troubling that typically when this is discussed, that artistic flourishing, flourishing is attributed mainly to James and Henry, when we have so much evidence that Anna was actually actively participating and patronizing the arts. Now, the Tudor pageants were kind of a precursor for the Stuart Mass, were they not? Yes. The interesting difference um, for me as a scholar, as I think about it in terms of the Stuart Masks, is that Anna of Denmark actually performed sort of um, a role herself. She came out there in a role that was um, in some ways defining herself. 
The mask, of course, is a genre that is supposed to point toward dynasty and king, and indeed they did. But in these masks, Anna also did a significant amount of self-fashioning. Now, by the time we get to her daughter-in-law, Henrietta Maria, Henrietta Maria is actually taking speaking parts on stage, which was quite shocking. Uh, Anna is not doing speaking parts, but she is doing some really interesting things uh, with the mask. Yeah, let's let's talk about what kind of interesting things she would have done with the masks, because I, I would also like you to touch base maybe a little bit on the purpose of them. Were they used as propaganda or how were they used? Sure, sure. So the purpose of the mask was definitely um, dynastic fashioning. And that's going to be important to the Stuarts because they are Scottish royalty on the English throne. So they're presenting dynasty through these masks. The masks were performed for um, important people in the court, ambassadors and things of that nature. They became very political by the reign of Charles II. Uh, in fact, the last mask that Charles does uh, before Civil War, he invites Parliament. And in that particular mask, he is um, attempting to say, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm a peaceful king, you should follow me, but if you don't, there'll be consequences. That didn't work out very well for him. But um, James and Anna also presented masks. James presented some and Anna presented some. And they were meant to show, um, to support dynasty, to celebrate dynasty, to show the power of the king. They always focused on the king as the originator of power. Um, but, but even though they focused on the king, Anna found a space in them to present her own uh, vision. And I want to be clear, these masks were written by playwrights. Ben Johnson wrote some of them, Samuel Daniel. But Samuel Daniel and Ben Johnson make it clear that Anna participated. I mean, they actually say in the written, the, the printed form of these uh, masks in the places where the, where the queen participated. Samuel Daniel, for example, tells us in the published version of A Vision of Twelve Goddesses that Anna was the one who decided that she would be Pallas Athena and not Juno. And that's interesting because the mask of um, the Twelve Goddesses, which takes place in the Temple of Peace, uh, this is in 1604, is meant to celebrate James in one of the roles he most cherished, and that's the idea of the peacemaking king. So um, James thought of himself as the bringer of peace. And so this is all about him. These 12 goddesses, they're bringing gifts to him in the temple of peace to celebrate the fact that he is a peaceful monarch. And the most logical thing for Anna to do would be take the role of, of, um, of Juno, the, the wife of Jupiter, the head god. But what she decides to do, and Samuel Daniel says she decided this, was to play Pallas Athena. So she appears on stage wearing a helmet, a military helmet, and a mantle that contemporary accounts say was embroidered with engines of war. So she is this, this uh, w goddess of wisdom and war appearing in the uh, temple of peace. Um, and I don't know if this is interesting to anyone, but in addition to that, her costume was a little bit revealing. Um, Dudley Carlton says in a letter that her clothes were, um, I forgot exactly how he said it, her clothes were such that you could see, uh, it, was, it was cut like above the knee so that you could see that a woman had both feet and legs. <laughs> so yes, his letter is like, it's quite scandalous. We saw her feet, we saw her legs, and this is the queen up there, you know. Um, and so again, even though this was about James, he's the one they're giving the gifts to, the female body of the queen is on stage. 
it is it is catching the attention of the audience. And that's, of course, one way that she sort of sculpts this for herself. One of her later masks, the Mask of Queens, is really interesting, too. And Ben Johnson wrote that, and he makes it very clear that she, that Anna, was the one who suggested the anti-mask to start. So it starts with the anti-mask with witches, and these witches are disturbing patriarchy. And then we have these queens to come down to restore patriarchy. But Ben Johnson, probably in some consultation with Anna, chooses some really interesting queens. Uh, these are often warlike queens um, who themselves uh, were somewhat problematic in terms of patriarchy. I'm thinking of Alaska, the Bohemian queen, for example, who, according to Ben Johnson, in his notes, so he knew this, uh, killed her barbarous husband. So there's just some interesting things going on in some of these uh, masks. Um, that I think, uh, another one that I don't want to touch on too much because it's it's very problematic in some ways and it would take more time to discuss it, but in The Mask of Blackness, um, Anna decides, and Ben Johnson says she decided this, to have her women appear not, okay, they're going to appear as the daughters of the River Niger. So they're going to appear as black women, but they're not going to carry masks to cover their faces to make them look black they actually put makeup on themselves to make them look black. This was criticized, and Ben Johnson makes it clear it was Anna's idea. My guess is that Samuel Daniel and Ben Johnson make clear that things are Anna's idea when they might be controversial. But my guess is, and this is what many scholars think as well, if Anna's making these big decisions, she's probably also consulting in smaller decisions as well. So in some ways, we think of these masks as Anna's, even though they were written by uh, professionals. Uh, she was definitely collaborating and presenting her own self-image through them as a powerful woman. When we talk about self-image, one of the things that I want to talk just briefly or touch briefly on is her religion. Did she yes. switch when she came to Scotland? Anna's Catholicism is fairly complicated. Um, she was never publicly Catholic in the way that, say, a consort like Catherine of Aragon was or even like her own daughter-in-law, Henrietta Maria, whose Catholicism really caused conflict uh, in England. Um, and scholars actually debate about her commitment to the Catholic faith, about when she actually converted, and actually about a number of other related things. But Anna came to Scotland as a Lutheran, and the marriage treaty allowed her to practice her Lutheran faith in Scotland. But it offered no provisions for the queen to convert to Catholicism. In fact, James had selected Anna in part because he wanted to marry a Protestant princess. Um, this was important to his uh, plan to eventually be English king. Uh, but at some point in the early 1590s, Anna did convert to Catholicism. There are different um, theories as to why that is. Uh, some of them felt that she uh, was very... Um, I think of a good word to explain this, that she felt isolated as a young queen, and she didn't particularly like the uh, Calvinist brand of Protestantism uh, that was um, sort of in vogue in uh, Scotland at the time. And her chaplain, who came with her, actually converted to this form of Calvinism, so she felt very lonely. And most scholars suggest that um, in her loneliness, she turned to her friends, and one of her friends was a Countess of Huntley. Henrietta Stewart, and um, the uh, daughter of James's early favorite, Ismay Stewart, and she was a devout Catholic. So we think she was instrumental in the conversion. 
And historians debate exactly when that conversion took place. Some of them put it as late as the 1600s. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, as late as 1600. Um, but I tend to agree with Maureen Meikle and Helen Payne that it probably was earlier, about 1592. But she went, the reason it was confusing, we don't know quite what her commitment is, is that she continued to go to Protestant services, but she didn't take communion. And she didn't take communion at her um, coronation in England either. So it is my belief that she was committed to her Catholic faith, but I also think what commitment looks like is um, is different. Of course, the Catholics would have preferred her to be more radically and obviously in favor of Catholicism, like Henrietta Maria was, but she was very politically shrewd, and uh, she practiced more privately. We know at the time, you know, religion, there was a lot of conflict with religion with the Catholics and the Protestants, and the gunpowder plot incident is something that we often hear that Anna was involved in. Is there any truth to that? Can you confirm or deny it? So, yes, I have seen the Internet rumor about the gunpowder plot. And as far as I can see, it's based on absolutely no evidence. I have not found a legitimate scholar who agrees with that. The evidence that I have seen presented is the fact that Anna was Catholic. And according to a web article I read, she was dissatisfied with her marriage and her Catholicism and dissatisfaction made her want to be part of this plot. You know, she probably was dissatisfied to some degree and she was Catholic. But for her to plot to kill her husband, and by the way, her two sons would have been there too, so Henry and Charles, to plot to kill her husband and two sons is really quite absurd in the absence of any evidence. And to make her Catholicism a form of evidence, which is what people are doing against her, I think reeks of the type of anti-Catholic rhetoric that we saw in the early modern period. I mean, read uh, Francis Dolan's um, uh, Horse of Babylon, you know, it, it, it feels like that. Um, the idea that she would have killed her husband, and, and at least one internet source says that she could make her daughter Elizabeth Queen, I think would be laughable if it didn't reek so much of misogyny and anti-Catholicism. Um, I just don't find it credible at all. Um, and I don't see anyone presenting any evidence except, well, she was Catholic, therefore she would have done it, which again seems to me a really troubling form of anti-Catholic rhetoric to be continuing into the 21st century. Yeah, unfortunately, I think um, sometimes historical fiction clouds these answers. Yeah, and it's very problematic, I think, for Anna of Denmark and for her daughter-in-law, Henrietta Maria, because um, so few, well, scholars have written about Henrietta Maria, but still so few people know about them as compared to Elizabeth. So when historical fiction begins to um, shape them, it, it, there's very little to balance that. So, yeah. <laughs> and I'm fascinated by her children as well. Do we know what kind of mother she was? Um, so Anna, of course, had seven children. Only three of them lived to adulthood. Um, her children, Henry, Elizabeth, Margaret, Charles, and Robert, were all born in Scotland. Uh, and when she was in England, she had Mary and Sophia. Um, she mourned deeply when the uh, some of her children, for example, Margaret died at two years of age. Robert died when he was a few months old. She mourned deeply for her children. She was apparently very, I mean, she was very close to Henry. Not as many people talk about the fact she was also very close to Charles. They shared a love for the arts. Um, some scholars suggest she wasn't as close to her daughter, Elizabeth. I actually don't know enough information on that to speak on that. But from what I can see, she seemed to be a caring and concerned mother, as her mother had been 
uh, with her. So, um, and she, of course, fulfills the dynastic um, obligation. Uh, she produces the heir, Henry, and the spare, Charles, who is, of course, needed when Henry dies, when he is but 18. And Anna did mourn deeply for her son. Well, our time is winding down here, and I've realized I have a three pages worth of questions I still want to ask, oh, but there's never, there is never enough time. So we'll have to invite you back again in the future, but I would love to end with a question that I like to ask a lot of my guests, and I might throw you a curveball with this one, but Susan, what would you say was Anne of Denmark's biggest mark on history? I would say that Anna's biggest influence that we still can see would be artistic. Um, she was an important patron of the arts in the Jacobean period. Um, and for me, as a lit scholar, I'm particularly interested in the work she did with the masks. Um, I think they were very interesting. Now, many scholars talk about, well, they only happened, you know, rarely, so they don't really define her. And that's true. But I think they did influence other writers. I am convinced by the work of people like David Bergeron that Anna and her family actually are an influence on Shakespeare's work. I am convinced that Anna probably was an influence on Shakespeare's Cleopatra. Now, of course, I think Elizabeth I was there too, uh, but Cleopatra is a fertile um, uh, queen. She is um, excessive. She presents uh, performances. And I think it's convinced, I, I am convinced by the literary scholars who say there are images of Anna in that. I'm also very convinced by David Bergeron's argument that the return of the royal family was very influential for writers at, in, the, um, in the early 1600s and that Shakespeare himself was influenced in his romances uh, to think about families because of um, James and the royal family that he brought to the English throne. So for me, as a lit scholar, I'm fascinated by the influence that Anna could have had on Shakespeare's work. I'm fascinated by what she did in terms of the mask genre. But in terms of architecture, she had an influence. Uh, she was a jewel collector. Uh, the paintings that she commissioned are very important. So I would say her probably her biggest, most significant influence that we'd feel today is probably in the artistic flourishing of the Jacobean period, which was partly because of her, also some because of James and Henry, of course, but she's the part of that that's often been ignored. Dr. Susan Dunhensley, thank you so much for coming on today to kind of show us a, maybe a different side of Anne of Denmark that we didn't know before. Thank you for having me. I've so enjoyed talking to you about this. And that concludes this episode of the podcast. A special thank you to my newest Patreon patrons, Caitlin B., Amanda G., and Emily K. If you'd like to become a patron and receive not only early access to things, but also exclusive access, now is the time. It's February 2022, and that means this podcast is celebrating its fifth year. Your support has meant so much to me over the years, and I look forward to sharing history with you for many more to come. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.